You are listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast, a place to grow, learn, and be inspired as you discover God's purpose for your life. Here's your host, the pastor you've always wanted without the church, Dr. Kumar Dixit. Hey, 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 welcome back to another podcast with the Concierge Minister Kumar Dixit. Glad that you can join me again. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of people that have kind of influenced my my thinking and have kind of shaped the way that I um, view my own spirituality. Um, Bart Ehrman is probably one of the uh, is on top of that list. N.T. Wright, um, Rachel Held Evans, uh, Jackie Hill Perry. Um, but there's one person who I've read every one of their books and. Um, before I go on, I do have one listener who, who emailed me and said, I gush over these authors and I like suck, suck up to them. But this is worth sucking up to Brian McLaren. So um, about almost 20 years ago, I was driving across country um, from being a pastor in California, just finished my master's degree. And as I was driving cross country, I was reading a book and, you know, as a pastor, we're geeks. So I'm not like reading like fiction. I'm reading a book called um, The Church on the Other Side, doing ministry in the, in the postmodern matrix. And I, I think I was somewhere in Texas um, at a hotel room. And I finally turned the, to the back of the book and I was like, who is this guy? And I saw that, you know, Brian McLaren, it was his first book. And it said that he... He was a pastor in Burtonsville, Maryland. Well, listen to this. I was driving to Burtonsville, Maryland, because that's where my church was, about a mile and a half um, from Brian's church. I had no idea. And so from a hotel room, I emailed Brian somehow and said, hey, I'm going to be your neighbor. And I, you know, I, I definitely sounded um, very much like a stalker. Wouldn't you agree, Brian? <laughs> no, I didn't think that at all. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, about a month or two later, we sat down for, for coffee at, at Starbucks off of 198 and um, started getting better acquainted with our, both of our churches um, very close in proximity. And, and since then, I've read um, all of Brian's books. And this new book that's coming out, Brian, um, How Do I Stay or, or Do I Stay Christian is, mm. is, is the title. And, and um, I, I read this book and I, I texted you last week, you know, I was in Puerto Rico reading this book on, on the ocean and it, it's not a book that I, you can just speed read. I mean, and luckily even in the book, there's several places where you go, it may be time for you to sit down and go, go, go for a long walk and kind of think <laughs> about what you just read and come back to this. And I, and I really needed those prompts. So I say all of that to say, welcome to Brian McLaren. Thank you for joining me. So happy to be with you, uh, seeing an old neighbor and old friend. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, you know, you wrote this book, at least you write that you wrote the book during the pandemic. What was happening in your life? Um, what were you observing around your life that you felt like you needed to write this book at this time? Well, in many ways, as you know, Kumar, my whole life and ministry have been really uh, about this book because... Uh, I grew up in a very uh, strict and conservative Christian family, and I remember feeling at the age of eight or 10 or 12, I don't think I'm going to be able to last <laughs> in this religion. And then I ended up having kind of a powerful spiritual experience in my teenage years and found myself with both feet on the path, but never feeling that I was totally, uh, that I totally fit. 
in, mm-hmm. in, inside the boxes that were given to me of what Christianity meant. And so that's been really my personal struggle. But um, what's happened in the course of my life is I went from feeling I was really an outlier uh, among my generation to feeling that younger generations, every, every year that passed, more and more people were feeling the same way I had felt. And I think that really reached a kind of uh, crescendo in, in 2016 with the election and where uh, Christians, especially white Christians, sort of fell out in, in the political scene. And, and I think since then, that's only intensified uh, to, to make especially young people, but surprising numbers of older people too, think I, I may not belong here anymore. So that, that set the stage uh, for the book. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, if you were to look out and kind of see a um, characterization of Christianity, at least for me, it doesn't even reflect uh, my own faith of, of the way that Christianity is being portrayed out in the public, right? And, yeah. and you give us good reason for why maybe it's okay to leave the church if, if, if people are feeling that way. Yeah, and it's so interesting. Just this morning, I was uh, just scanning through the news and in my news feed came uh, an article about a uh, Russian Orthodox priest in a small town in Russia who had the courage to uh, add to his congregation right after the Russian invasion of Ukraine to say this is wrong. Hmm. And within a few hours, the police were at his door to interrogate him and he's been fined. And now he's and continuing to speak out in social media. And if and uh, he, one of his lines in the article was, uh, apparently there's an old Russian saying, if, uh, if you are afraid of the wolves, don't walk in the forest. No. And he basically was saying, look, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I know I'm taking a risk, but I have to do it. I'd have no integrity if I don't. So simultaneously, you have a courageous Russian Orthodox priest standing up to what's happening in Ukraine. And you have the head of the uh, Russian Orthodox community uh, an arch supporter of uh, Putin and everything that's happening. So uh, th- that's just the paradox that being a Christian means opposite things uh, mm. to to uh, one person in the next. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that you also talk about is being a Christian sometimes means you need to be oppositional. Yes. Yes. And I, I think, and the irony of this, we shouldn't be surprised because this was what our founder was about. He said to his followers, look, you, you're probably going to get kicked out of your, your faith community. And when people kick you out, they will think they're doing God's work. They'll, mm. they'll think they're serving God. Yeah. So he, he, he didn't vilify them and say, these are evil people trying to do evil. They're people who think they're doing good. He was so realistic about these dynamics. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I think he said, you know, if two or three of you get together in my name, it's as if to say, you're going to feel you're sort of on the margins. And if you could just find two or three people, you know, <laughs> you'll, you'll be okay. Right, right. No, that that's really good. The, the book's divided in, in three sections. Um, you know, part one, you kind of give people some obvious reasons of why so many people are leaving the church and, yeah. and kind of not really defending it, but just kind of saying, hey, I get it. And I really understand why you would feel this way. Um, I'm going to gloss over that for today's yes. discussion, just because yeah. I think we're all on the same page. Um, yeah. You know, page, part, part two, you talk about kind of the reasons why you um, believe that you're wanting to stay within the system. And then part three is yeah. about 
kind of creating a framework of, of next steps if you do decide to stay within the Christian yeah. um, uh, system. And, and, and one of the things that you say, you know, on page 100, you say, if I remain a Christian, I at least stand in religious solidarity with 85% of the world's population who identify as religious, be they Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Sikh, Jewish, or other. And each non-religious tradition has developed unique treasures and its greatest honor is not to hide these treasures or, or dangle them um, as an enticement to convert, but rather to share them freely with one another. Now, I wish you would see my book, Brian, because you can barely read like the words on the book because I've scribbled so many like notes in the margin because, you know, especially as somebody who teaches world religions, you know, on a university yes. level, um, I, I think one of the things that you're discussing sounds extremely dangerous because what you're basically saying is that we can learn from other, um, our, our cousins, you know, religious cousins, mm -hmm. and that we may not necessarily need to think about converting them. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, I, I believe in freedom of religion. So if people would like to convert, I think they have every right to convert. And if people feel their own religion is hurting them or stunting their growth or uh, creating harm in the world, and they say, I think I'd be better off in this other one, I, I support that. And, and that's saying a lot for me because I come from an evangelical background where everything was about conversion. And really, there was the whole idea that you make friends with people in order to convert them. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and the implication being that if you weren't trying to convert them, why would you ever want to associate with those people, those mm. people, right? Yeah. So, uh, so that's, that's the background I come from. But when you start, or for me, when I started becoming honest about the failures of my own faith tradition, and I also became honest about the strengths of other faith traditions, uh, that was the first thing that made me say, wouldn't it be nice if we could all be honest about our failures and offer one another our, our gifts? Mm. Uh, that just seems to me, my, my you know, the Jesus command to love your neighbor as yourself, that's what I wish my religious neighbors would do for me. Why wouldn't I want to do the same for them? Uh, I, you know, the people who showed this to me the most in my own life were Buddhists and, and, and my Jewish friends as well. But I think first it hit me with Buddhists. I had, uh, when, when I was younger, I had many, many Buddhist friends. I still have a few, but uh, I had a lot of Buddhist friends. I never had one of them try to get, to get me con to convert, but they loved to share with me stories of the Buddha or the teach the Dharma, the teachings of Buddhism. And it was always offered to me as, you don't have to convert. This is just something that we, that helps us. And if it helps you, you're, you're welcome to have it. I thought that's the way I would like to be with my own, uh, my own Christian faith. But then one other thing that pushed me farther in this direction, and that is when I started to face the reality of global crises, climate change, uh, the growing gap between rich and poor, the proliferation of weapons at all levels from handguns to weapons of mass destruction. I realized no one religion can solve these problems alone. And if we care about our children and grandchildren, we better hope that, that generous elements of all of our religious traditions are willing to come together uh, for the common good. So those two things together kind of push me in that direction. Yeah, when I was when I was reading that part of the, the book, one of the things that it reminded me of um, is Samir's book, It's All About God, you know, the idea, yes. um, both you and I know Samir, and it's, you know, his idea that 
we should embrace the other and get to know them, not because we're trying to use them to convert them, but because we're genuinely interested in who they are as our neighbors. When we're genuinely interested in our neighbor, I think we're being authentically Christian. Mm. And I think Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and others could say the same thing. And so that allows us to try to encounter one another with genuine respect. And my first thought then is not what religion are you? My first thought is you're a fellow human being uh, where we're already related. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I like that. Um, you, you've heard of the saying, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm. Yes. So, and, and, you know, the older I get, um, and as I have teenagers who, who discover new things and they tell me, and I kind of laugh because it's stuff that I knew about like 30 years ago, but it's all new to me. Yeah. It, it's very rare that I like feel like I have a new idea or concept mm. until chapter 14 of your book. <laughs> <laughs> and I, Brian, I read it twice. I had to put the book down for like a full day. I just blew my mind about, you know, you were talking about kind of the first axial and the second axial age. Yes. And, and, you, and you talk a lot about evolution um, and giving us permission to believe in evolution and still believing in the existence of God. So, mm-hmm. so can you talk about that a little bit? Because I know that, you know, for me with a fundamental, you know, background that I grew up in, it was like, you, there, it has to be airtight because yes. if you if you even let the air out a little bit, it's going to expand and it's going to and it's going to implode our world understanding or our yes. worldview. And and one of the things that you talk about is just the idea that the, the world could be millions of years old and and it's and we can still be Christians with that belief. Yes, yes. So I don't think we. Uh, I think a lot of people don't slow down. And, and pay attention to what happened in the last few hundred years. A lot of people have heard of some, someone named Adam Smith. He wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations, which is seen as, in some ways as the scripture of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Well, what Adam Smith was really saying that was so revolutionary was the wealth of nations can change. Nations can get richer, nations can get poorer. Because b- before this, people, and in Adam Smith's day, people had the idea of, Nations are, some are poor, some are rich. And it's, and they might've even said, and that's decreed by God. And that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And that had huge implications on a personal level, because then you could say, I was born poor in, in, you know, the lower classes. And, but then you could think I could change. So the possibility of change economically was a radical idea in, in the West, uh, and then comes Charles Darwin, changes happening in biology. And, you know, it really wasn't until about 100 years ago that Edwin Hubble, um, we know him from the Space Telescope, but his real groundbreaking or earth-shaking, uh, almost literally, discovery was an expanding universe. The idea that the universe is expanding. Because even then, many people had the idea that the universe was static and eternal. And when you find out that the universe is expanding, you can imagine putting it in rewind. And that's where you get to this idea of a big bang. You put all that together. And what you see is that in the matter of a couple of hundred years, the whole human species has to 
face the fact that everything is changing, everything is in motion, uh, everything is in flux, everything is in flux. And if God is the creator of this universe, then suddenly it makes us say, if the universe is was spoken into existence by the word of God, and of course, I, I think this is all incredibly powerful, metaphorical, poetic language, but the word of God, let there be light. It means that light expresses who God is and darkness expresses who God is and uh, whales and mountain lions and uh, hummingbirds express who God is and each of us expresses who God is. And if that's the case, then change that, that God is not static. God is dynamic. And if anyone, and, and that is a foreign idea to a lot of Christians because they inherited a, a huge dose of Greek philosophy. They don't know it, but hidden in a lot of Christian theology was Greek philosophy. And the Jews didn't see it this way. They, the ancient Jews had a very different worldview than the Greeks. And, and I think the way I like to say it is that I think the Jewish idea of good is better than the Greek idea of perfect because perfect is static and stagnant uh, and good is dynamic and creative. Uh, and, and so this opens up a revolution in Christian theology that I think is so exciting, but for some people it's quite terrifying. And I understand because I think I was probably terrified <laughs> by it the first time I heard about it too. Uh, one of the things you you say, like let's let's just say we were on a continuum continuum of zero to a hundred, you know, in 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 the planet's history. Um, one of the one of the things that you say is like, you know, we're basically at like two, um, yeah. and, and and so if we're so early on in the formation of the of of of, of not just the planet, but then even of Christianity and religion and yeah. understanding spirituality. Why would you give up so quickly when we're at the at the early onset of the formation yeah. of our faith? Yeah, yes, uh, and uh, and and this actually plays back into this Greek philosophical idea that I think gets us in trouble, because mm -hmm. one of the ideas that the Greeks had, I think you could say it like this, and it wasn't unique to the Greeks. I'm sure others had it too, but it was the idea that the highest and best form of something is its earliest form. Mm. Um, so that when something's created, it's perfect. And then over time, it might deteriorate and decay. Whenever you hear people use the phrase slippery slope, mm -hmm. they're playing into this idea that we start at the top of the mountain and we could be sliding down. But what evolution says, and I actually think what metaphorically the first chapters of Genesis say, is we don't start at the top of a slope of perfection. We start in a good world, and part of its goodness is that it continues to develop and evolve and change and make new, new possibilities. So I, I, we could say it like this. When the world was created, there was no Mozart, there was no Bob Dylan, there was no Taylor Swift. Those were goodnesses that were going to come a lot later. And, uh, and so new goodnesses keep erupting in this universe. Uh, and, and that, to me, is a sign of Whatever we mean when we say the word God, we're pointing out to this idea that God is God's creativity is it just keeps unfolding. Mm, mm, that's 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 so beautiful. It's um, it, it was mind blowing for me, and one of the things that I probably circled, you know, two hundred times in your book are just all the different authors that you were citing. 
um, and people that you're reading, um, Catholics, Protestants, um, ancient Talmud, um, 18th, you know, 19th century um, slave writers. And um, do, do you have like a, like a um, writing assistant, a researcher or somebody, <laughs> Brian? Like, how are you like yeah. pulling all this stuff, stuff together? No, I, I, I just am a solo uh, operation here, but I'll tell you what happens after you start writing is you write something and then somebody sends you an email and they say, hey, did you know that James Baldwin said almost exactly what you're saying? And then somebody else says, hey, did you hear the backstory to Christopher Columbus who you mentioned in this lecture? And so people, all my readers become my teachers. And that, <laughs> that so I guess you could say I have hundreds of thousands of research assistants in that yeah. way over over the years yeah that that's pretty amazing um you know one of the other reasons why you say that you know we you're going to stay a christian is because of our legendary leader um jesus yeah. christ and i kind of raised my eyebrows because uh, i was kind of like, really jesus and you know i had to really kind of do some introspection about who jesus is and mm. what did jesus really do and i think you know like one of the things I, I would be interested in doing is taking kind of copying and pasting just the red letters out of the new testament and putting it into a different document and then just read that without the context of the sermon on the mount or a conversation you know with with the widow and just see exactly what jesus was saying but because i think what has happened um especially as preachers have tried to try to be creative and you you know kind of use theatrical language is that we've recreated Jesus to be somebody and something that he may not have come to this earth as and I, I know you talk a lot um, ab about this um, in, in your book the secret message of Jesus but what um, what is it about Jesus our our legendary founder that makes you want to stay connected? Yeah. Hey guys, this is Kumar, your concierge minister. I want to just let you know that I would be honored to record a prayer for you so that you can listen to it anytime that you're discouraged or you need some encouragement. Just send me a message at concierge at gmail.com with your phone number and what you want me to pray for you about, whether it's a blessing, whether it's for forgiveness, whether you want to just um, expand the possibilities for God to enlarge uh, your life with abundance. This is free of charge, no gimmicks, no hassle. Just shoot me a note and I will send you a personalized prayer for you so you can hang on to when you need some hope in your life. Um, oh, it's such a, uh, it's such a obvious and clear question. And the answer is, uh, I, I, I'm sure I'll stumble and struggle in trying to answer. <laughs> um, so let me first say that uh, one of the reasons I love Jesus is because I don't think you could take his statements and just put them in a book and the statements alone would be that compelling. Mm -hmm. What makes them compelling is when you have some understanding of his time and his context. In other words, I don't think Jesus is, is giving a lot of timeless truths and making statements about things that are universally across history accurate. I think uh, I think he does probably in a lot of ways, but I think what makes his statement so electric and alive is when you put him in the context of Judea and Galilee in the first century in somewhere around 80, 25 or 30, whenever it was, 
And here is a young man who grows up in this setting, a setting where group is pitted against group, where the society is deeply divided. I know it's hard for us to imagine living in such a world so deeply divided. <laughs> um, but you've got the Romans, and then the Romans are ruling over the Jews, and you've got all these parties. We, we think of the, those of us who read the Bible a lot, we think of these as religious groups, but they were really political parties. Mm -hmm. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Zealots, they were political parties. Mm -hmm. And they were out, many of them were out killing each other, and they were in a contest to see who was going to win the day. And so Jesus, I think you understand him living in that context. And what he does is instead of getting embroiled in those debates only on their level, he sort of steps to a higher level and gives people a vision of something that they hadn't imagined yet. Mm. Um, and he, he, in a sense, blows open the little box that they're in and says, you live in a bigger cosmos than you realize. And God is different than you think. I yeah. mean, really, yeah. it, it, Jesus' vision of God is so different than anybody thought at the time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I look at Jesus in that context, yeah, it's, uh, I just think here is someone who like took us to uh, open the door to a whole new way of being human. Yeah. And his, his message was just kind of almost like lighting the wick. It wasn't yes. kind of just, this is Jesus has three and a half years on earth and now it's over. And we can yes. just act like it's it's finished. In fact, that really relates to what we were talking about earlier, because a lot of us, the version of Christianity we were taught was, oh, Jesus got it. It was perfect. And everything now is sort of a step down. Or our mm -hmm. goal is to be conservative, to always go back. Many of us were part of restorationist churches that tried to restore the church to its original purity. All that kind of talk yeah. fits in with that philosophy. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says, listen, guys. Um, it's way better for you that I leave, uh, and uh, uh, and the Spirit's going to guide you. There's a whole lot of stuff you're not ready for. Uh, you'll be guided into that when you're ready. He very literally, clearly says, um, you know, that that I'm not uh, I'm not giving the last word. I, mm. I'm I'm getting something started, and there's a whole lot more for you to learn. Yeah. Uh, he even says, you know that you'll, you're, you're going to do greater things than I did. I mean, there's a, a yeah. one that you wouldn't dare to say if, if, you know, that weren't in the, in the text. So, um, so all that's to say, I think, uh, you know, this isn't in anybody's creed, but mm. one of the things that I think is most fundamentally true about Jesus is that he was a movement leader mm. and the electricity at the heart of that spiritual, political, ecological, social, economic movement yeah. is still inspiring people today. Hmm. I, I love, I love that. It, it reminds me a couple of weeks ago, I, I attended a um, musical at the only theater. Um, yes. I remember the only theater. <laughs> and it was actually um, what they, they build it as the world premiere of a play that they had um, put together and they did workshopping it. And it was called 16 AD. And it was the love story between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. And it was a, it was, it was a musical and, and, and they, they put it in a 16 AD at a perfect time, because it's kind of the period of time that we don't know anything about Jesus, yes, you know? Yes. And so it gives us, a, it gives them a creative license. 
And, yes. and it's about Mary Magdalene li really loving Jesus and having a crush on him and him trying to change the world, but trying to just figure out new things. And so, you know, yes. he tells a story about, you know, the Good Samaritan, for example, and, and all the, all the lepers are listening to him and Mary Magdalene says, well, well, I'm, I'm more interested, you know, about what happened to the guy on the road. And Jesus says, well, really, that's not the point. It's, it's, um, it's really about this, the, you know, the, the religious people. And then she goes, well, I think the story would be more interesting if you talked about the, the need to help the guy on the road. And Jesus goes, yeah, yeah. Let me let me workshop that a little bit. Let me let me think about that. <laughs> you know, and uh, there there's you know numerous times yes. you know in the in the play where Jesus is kind of working things out and he hasn't fully fully figured it out. And you know, yeah. there was a part of me that was like laughing, and there was a part of me that was cringing and hoping no one knew that I was sitting there watching yeah. the play. But what I loved about that is the creative imagination to actually be willing to think outside of what we've been given down as yes. traditional um, yes. uh, to traditional doctrines. And, yes. and when we're able to really look at the Bible as an open text, it gives us permission to really kind of see what Jesus is really saying in, in the narrative. Yes. So, so true, so true. Um, and, and, you know, to just put a sort of a fine point on that, uh, G, according to three of the Gospels, anyway, um, Jesus' favorite term to describe himself was not son of God. Mm. Um, uh, that's other people's favorite term. And that term had a political meaning. We think of it as mm. a religious term with sort of Trinitarian meaning or whatever. But, but in Jesus' day, son of God had a very, it, it had a political meaning. Mm -hmm. um, but his favorite term for himself was son of man. Mm. Uh, and I, I was part of a project once that we were asked to do a paraphrase, kind of a scholarly paraphrase of the New Testament. It, it was called The Voice. And, uh, and they chose a different writer for uh, a different contemporary writer for each New Testament writer. So hmm. I got paired up with Luke. So oh, wow. it meant that I worked with the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And one of the things I had to do in the Gospel of Luke is deal with these different phrases like Christ. Mm. or uh or the phrase son of man and what became clear to me is i really wrestled with that phrase and got to be kind of a theological nerd and dive deep in the literature was to realize that well first of all son of means a new generation of and mm. man means humanity mm. um so so for jesus to say i'm a new generation of humanity i'm trying to be a new kind of human being this is wow. the way i understand myself Wow. The, the current kind of human being is violent, greedy, you know, all the rest. I'm trying to model a different way of being a human being. Uh, yeah, that, that, that becomes to me, like, I, I don't think that makes Jesus less interesting. I think right. it makes Jesus way more. As, and so there you saw it in that. In that uh, yeah, play. yeah, I love that. Um, you know, you, you, when you first started out 20 years ago, um, kind of in the mainstream you know, Christian press, you were kind of the, known as the father of postmodernism. Um, and, you know, they, 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 they and I tried to really kind of peg you, you know, as, as that. And somehow, you know, you were able to kind of keep moving, you know, and, and then you took on this huge mantle of social justice, you know, um, and, and really we're, we're writing about that and, and, and commenting on that. Um, in, 
in this book in particular, there's a, a theme that's kind of woven from page one to the very last page, and that is kind of this eco-theology that, that, that exists. And, um, you know, one, one of the things that you say in, in part three of the book is, look, whether you stay a Christian or not, let's just say you don't stay a Christian, um, let's all work together to, yeah. to, to care for this beautiful planet. Um, talk to me about that and, and, and why that is so much in your forefront of your thinking and writing these days. Yeah. Well, uh, the short answer is it's, a, it's a existential threat. It's, uh, I would say our two greatest and most immediate existential threats are nuclear war, which, you know, seemed somewhat distant three months ago, mm-hmm. but in, in recent weeks now it's on everybody's front page and, um, and then the other is climate change and, and climate change and nuclear war go together because if you create the amount of instability that one meter or two meters or three meters of sea level rise will, will unleash on the earth, uh, then it's not hard to imagine people being desperate enough that, that n- nuclear war could be, could be even more likely than it is with just, you know, idiotic arrogant, narcissistic leaders who uh, would do things out of spite or arrogance. Now it becomes a, a situation of global desperation. Yeah. So th- that's the, the, the obvious answer, but it really ties back to something we talked about earlier. And that is what I see Jesus doing. He frames his message in light of the most serious threats that his people faced. I don't think too many people were thinking about global threats mm-hmm. in AD 30, but Jesus was facing an existential threat. And, and it was that his compatriots would have a violent revolution against the Romans. Mm. And Jesus was not a fan of Roman domination, but he knew if there was a violent uh, revolution, he knew the power of Rome. In fact, there's a not, it's never told in the, in the Bible, but when Jesus was a boy, if he was growing up in uh, Nazareth, a few miles from Nazareth was a town called Sephora. And there, uh, there was an uprising and the Romans crucified, I forget how many people, but I think thousands of men were crucified, kind of a mass slaughter of -hmm. anyone who could possibly be a rebel. So Jesus grows up with this threat that the Romans, that we could have a revolution and the Romans could come in and crush us. And I think so much of Jesus teaching is saying, here's how to survive. We don't have to submit to the Romans, but there's a way to uphold our dignity without thinking that a violent revolution is going to solve all our problems. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I grew up in the um, faith tradition of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination, yes. and um, you know, we're we're really obsessed with the Sabbath. Um, yes. You know, we and and I, I know you know you know Seventh-day Adventists. Um, very, very well, but, you know, our claim to fame and the one thing that we kind of hinge everything on is the Sabbath. So in many ways, the Sabbath has become um, our Jesus in many ways. Yes. I mean, we, we worship the Sabbath before, you know, in, in many ways than, than Jesus. And, and I've been preaching for years that if we really fully believed and understood what the significance of the Sabbath, when, when, you know, when God says, remember the seventh yes. day, right? Yes. Uh, over and over again, it, it, it's a commemoration of creation. Yes. And so Seventh-day Adventists, by, by all 
people should be the most staunch conservative creationists who are trying to save the planet and remember God's creation. And I, and I, I just wish, you know, that we would understand that, you know, that idea of Sabbath keeping is, is creation tending. And, you know, it would make such a huge difference. It, it really would. And, and it speaks brilliantly to our contemporary struggle and it, that climate change is one symptom of. And that is that we believe that the more money you make, the faster is always good. Yeah. And, we, and, and the way you make money is by converting long-term natural assets, uh, mountains, rivers, streams, soil, uh, converting long-term natural assets into short-term personal profits or corporate profits. Yeah. And, and in a sense, the Sabbath, the idea of the Sabbath says, hey, we don't need to maximize income. We're willing right from the start to drop one seventh of our potential income. Right. Uh, so yes. Income is not God. <laughs> right, know? right, right. And uh, oh my, it's so powerful. It is so powerful. You're right. And, and the, the idea that on the seventh day is the day that God says everything is good and what is everything is very good. Yeah. And again, I, I know so many people think you have to take this literally. I think it's so much more meaningful when we take it metaphorically and, and poetically, because there's no way to talk about spiritual things other than poetry and metaphor, really. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but to say that for human beings to be part of the whole, mm. it's not human beings apart from the whole, it's human yeah. beings part of the whole. And wow. that vision we desperately need again, too. Wow, I, I love I love that. So Brian, what I, I know as you're talking about that theme in your book, you're not just trying to get me to recycle. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. a good start. I mean, what do you what do you want the reader to do when we talk about saving and salvaging our planet? Yeah. Well, look, the the first thing that I would always say is every little thing that we can do, do it. Um yeah. but the world will not be saved by that. Um mm -hmm. And uh, this might shock people to hear me say this, but the truth is all of the solutions that we need are available. Um, they really are. They weren't 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. They really are available today, but we don't have politicians who have the courage to stand up to the people who are making money from the ways that are destroying the earth. So it would mean everybody would get, a, would make a commitment to vote for candidates who care about the earth and to refuse to vote for candidates who are, you know, uh, who are making their money from donations from people who are destroying the earth. So that would be one thing. But I'll tell you the other thing. I would, I think one of the most important things we can do is invite people to make caring for the earth part of everyday discussion. Mm. Um, so someone says, how are you doing today? Say, well, I'm doing great, except I read the, the report from the climate experts and uh, they're telling us we got a lot of work to do. So I carry that with me every day. They just drop that in a conversation. You yeah. Know? Uh, and it doesn't always have to be, you know, a Debbie Downer of talking about what's wrong. It also means celebrating when you hear somebody did something good or some corporation did something good or some politician uh, did something good. You know, one of the sports uh, for around the country, but especially where you live, mm -hmm. is bashing politicians. <laughs> yeah. and 
So it wouldn't hurt us all to say, you know, we always hear somebody bashing politicians in general or in particular. And then I might say, yeah, there's a lot of corrupt ones out there. Boy, I'm sure grateful for Senator Whitehouse of Rhode Island, who really cares about the environment and addresses that in all of his work. I, mm. I'm so inspired by him. You just have a positive thing to come back with yeah. that gets people thinking about this. Yeah, I like that, being an advocate. Um, you ready for some quick questions? Absolutely. Um, who, who are you reading these days? Like, who are, who are the people that I should be taking note of? Well, you know, I, I work at the Center for Action and Contemplation uh, uh, part-time. And uh, one, two of our, my fellow faculty, obviously Richard Rohr is there, who's amazing. And his, his work is, is wonderful. But one of the delights for me, Richard and I have been friends for over 20 years, but I've gotten to know um, Jim Finley or Dr. James Finley mm -hmm. and Dr. Barbara Holmes. And uh, Jim Finley and Barbara Holmes have amazing, some really amazing books, very, very different, yeah. but really amazing. And so those would be some I'd recommend. I'm actually I, right now reading, it's not published yet, but I'm reading the manuscript Jim sent me of his memoir, which is just incredible and uh, so those those would be too gosh i should just look at my desk here i have so many um <laughs> I, i'm actually reading i just started this very important book uh after jesus before christianity um and it's a, a really important book if it's for someone like yourself who who uh, appreciates bart ehrman this is in that category it's going okay. to challenge people to see that that from the time of jesus death until um, what we call Christianity comes to be, there's a very dynamic period that's very different than people would assume just looking back. You have to sort of look, you have to go back in time and look forward instead yeah. of interpret everything through what happened later. Uh, I like that. What do, you, what do you watch on Netflix right now? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I, I went through all the series that I liked. I'm a big science fiction fan, so I've been watching, you know, any of the science fiction uh, uh, series, but what I actually probably watch more than anything else these days is YouTube. So, uh, <laughs> okay, that's but I was a huge, but I was a huge fan. It wasn't Netflix, but I was a huge fan of The Expanse, and I finally got through the last available season of that. Oh. So. Okay, okay, very, very nice. Uh, are you already working on your next writing project? Uh, no, um, I, I, well, I should say I, I have two writing projects that. I will, I'd like to begin in about a year, okay. but uh, I mentioned science fiction because I've already finished the first draft of a science fiction novel that I wish, I hope will be the next thing I publish, but we'll, we'll see uh, very if, cool. if, if it's, uh, publishers are very nervous when they have writers who write primarily nonfiction, they're very <laughs> right. nervous about them trying fiction, they're afraid it's really going to stink, you know, right, so. try to cross over. <laughs> Yeah, that is awesome. Hey, man, thanks for joining me. I, I, I love the book. It's coming out in May. And I, I, I'm definitely thinking this is a, a book that, you know, church groups, small groups need to be reading together and discussing and, and digesting together. Um, don't just read this book on your own like I did. You, you got to really have someone to talk about this um, and, and really kind of process some of the things that Brian has been um, suggesting in the book. So Brian, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Kumar. Thanks for listening to the Concierge Minister podcast. If you want to learn more about growing in your faith or looking for an online faith community for support while you're on your journey, please visit concierge minister.com. 
or send us an email at concierge at gmail.com. Don't forget to click the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating. If you find this podcast helpful, please tell your friends about us. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, go and live your best life.